1: How can today's book lover decide what to read? With a vast array of choices, what to choose? Professor Jim Flynn is a world-renowned expert on intelligence and IQ and believes that reading gives you a deeper understanding of the world. You scoured the globe looking for the pearls by today's authors. You'll be surprised, delighted, you'll be outraged. But that's the magic of a book list. I'm Wallace Chapman, and in this ten-part series, I go in search of the best modern authors with Jim Flynn. Welcome to the new Torchlight List. In this episode, episode nine... Asia and the Middle East. And to India first up, now, uh, Jim, William Dalrymple. He's written five histories of India, a travel writer, and you really rate him.
2: I rate him as the only rival to Naipaul as a travel writer. He wrote one novel called, I think, The Shadow of Byzantium, which is about how Christians in the Middle East are still there, Some of them are Greek Orthodox that date back to Byzantium, and they're still in their monasteries, but slowly Christians are being squeezed out of the Middle East. The novels on India have a wealth of anecdote. There's one about, I think it's Delhi, and in it, he portrays vividly the poverty and the area. Uh, sometimes he doesn't satisfy your curiosity. I was interested in how the street of cat killers got its name.
1: And he's very, he, he's very good to how, um, well, he's very good on revealing the racism, uh, the self-righteousness and the brutality under British rule, doesn't he? He, 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 he explains well, that very well. Scott.
2: Scott does that best. Uh, Scott wrote also uh, an analysis of India, and one of Scott's novels is about when the British were in decline. And you can't understand... It was breathtaking how racious the English were, whether you could be promoted in the civil service, whether you were going to be indicted for a crime, who was to be admitted to a country club... Which nurse had to do the most menial tasks? They even had a a situation where if an Indian bought a first-class ticket on a train and then an Englishman came along and there were no first-class tickets left, the Indian was bumped. He no longer had a first-class ticket. And the, the treatment of Indians was just vile. As you, as you mentioned. you the only way to describe it.
1: As you mentioned here, people's utter, the English people's utter patronizing contempt for people of color. It was,
2: uh, was hair-raising. I had never yeah. realized what it must have been like yeah. to be an educated Hindu and to come in contact with this stuff.
1: And the jewel and the crown from nineteen sixty six is that, is that a um, book to go to? Yes, you, definitely. You, if, yes. That's by
2: Scott. By jewel and the crown
1: by Paul Scott. Now, now also Rohinton Mystery. You call a fine balance. You give it uh, the highest accolades. The best diagnosis of the caste system Jim has ever read.
2: Yes, it's about two men who are of lower caste who go to the city and they become taken up with a woman who makes clothing and they, you know, work on the sewing machines. But they then go back to their rural village. And it's during Yinda Gandhi's business on sterilizing people. And you're supposed to volunteer, but they had a quota to meet. And these people have fallen out with a local landowner. And therefore they're compulsory sterilized, you know, they're forced into it. And again, the caste system is revealed in all of its brutality. Uh, this is a recurring theme of Indian novels. Uh, you find a situation, for example, in India where two people married across caste. And the village elders say, well, they both have to be tortured and hung. And the boy's father pleads with him and says, can't you just cut off his nose and ears and keep him alive? And they say, no, he's going to be tortured and hung, but you can have the privilege of mutilating the woman he ran off with, and he refuses to do it, and she's mutilated by her father. And uh, the the caste system emerges. is horrific.
1: Looking to Japan uh, for this episode as well. And I must make mention, again, uh, something that isn't in here, might have been in your earlier book, I don't know, Haruki Murakami, uh, What about Norwegian Wood?
2: That's very good. I thought that it was well-written. And uh, he was mentioned in the earlier Ah, Torchlight List. All right. Yeah, that's well-written.
1: Okay. Now, uh, Shusaku Endo, hailed as uh, Japan's Graham Greene, Silence is about the persecution of Catholics in Japan in the 17th century.
2: Yes. uh, It's well-written, too. It's a very good book. Uh, there's a bit too much of interjection, of musing. But uh, the Catholic missionaries, Japan had decided the Catholic Church ought to be repressed. And the test is, could they make the priest defile the face of Christ? They would have the face of Christ as a painting, and was the missionary willing to spit on it and tromp on it? And they had horrific tortures if you did or didn't do it. And the guy finally gives in, by the way, he finally gives in and does defile the face of Christ. And then he's put, not treated badly, but he's essentially isolated from everyone. And his psychology is beautifully portrayed, but also beautifully portrayed as the Catholic parishioner who betrays him and who begs him for forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's up to Graham Greene, by the way, mm-hmm. but it is a very searching account of the persecution that existed at that time. Season of Poison is also a decent book by him. It's essentially about medical experts who did experiments on captured American soldiers during the war, and one of them realizes how wrong this was. But given his obedience to authority, he suspects he would do it all over again.
1: Moving into the Middle East, and here is an area, it's uh, opening my eyes, some of your picks, because I haven't read so much, for example, from Saudi Arabia. Is there any penetrating insight uh, by a book from Saudi Arabia to help me understand or get into that culture there?
2: Robert Lacey's Inside the Kingdom is unmatched. 2009. Yes, and you can't really understand what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Fundamentally, there are three things going on. That is, Sunni versus Shiite. And, of course, Saudi Arabia is Sunni, and Iran is Shiite. And like the great powers in Europe in an earlier age, they are rampaging all over the Middle East trying to do the other one in. The third player, of course, is Israel, which all Arabs are united against, but is seen to be the patron of America, And, of course, Israel has nuclear weapons. And I think the critics of this pact with Iran are right. Iran will eventually get them. Because the support for Israel totally distorts U.S. policy. She's supposed to be for a nuclear-free Middle East, but is really for an Israeli monopoly. And no Arab state will tolerate that forever, and Iran is the only one modern enough and industrialized enough and populous enough and it's going to develop its nuclear weapon as long as Israel has one. And the Saudis will then probably be the next to develop them. So
1: that is that is a book to... Uh, it's a
2: book that will give you an idea of what a primitive kingdom
1: this is. Inside the kingdom.
2: Uh, that's right. And despite being a U.S. ally, the terrible things that go on there, you know, cutting your hands off for theft and public executions and uh, and the treatment of women, of course, is utterly vile.
1: Ohan Pamuk. 2006, Orhan Pamuk won the Nobel Prize in Literature, becoming the first Turk to win a Nobel uh, Prize. And you recommend Pamuk's 2002 novel, Snow, because you say not only because it lays bare the murderous intensity behind Turkey's divisions, but because it's a great read.
2: It is. Snow is the best of these novels. And in it, a Turk goes back to Turkey as a journalist. And he goes to a city which has become featured in the news because women are supposedly committing suicide because they're not allowed to wear the burqa at university, the secularists are in control. Uh, And he's totally neutral, which means everyone suspects him. He's eventually killed because no one can believe that anyone is totally neutral. And he notices there are touches of humor. He's being followed by someone. And he says to the guy, are you following me for intelligence purposes or for my protection? And the guy says, God only knows, sir, whichever sounds better to you is fine by me. (laughs) And uh, it lays bare that the secularists and the uh, devout Islamists really loathe each other. And of course, now the devout Islamists are in power. And one of the things that they're going to take advantage of in this recent coup is to get rid of as many secularists as they can. And this novel really conveys how these people hate each other. The secularists run plays in which the the whole theme of the play is how could a Turk be so barbarian, you know, as to be traditional in religion.
1: Snow from 2002. And I'm really interested in this book. This is from Iran uh, by writer Azhar Nafisi. And the book Reading the Lita In Tehran, uh, this was in 2003, it it was written. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 127 weeks. It sounds like quite a read, and it's in your list. Tell us about it.
2: Well, it's a very good book indeed from Iran, and it's about a group of women who wanted to read current literature like The Great Gatsby. And, of course, this is forbidden under the regime of Khomeini. And they have to do it secretly in households behind closed drapes. And it not only shows the penalties you pay for being an Islamic woman with intellectual interests, there is a great spoof of Komomini himself. And she refers to one of his theological essays about when someone has sex with a chicken. And the theological problem arises can his family then eat the chicken? Uh, It turns out that he can't eat the chicken and his family can't and the next-door neighbours can't. But two doors down, you can eat the chicken that has been violated by sexual attention. So it's a very good book of need. I I think it deserved its prominence. All
1: right. And uh, this one also uh, I'm I'm quite keen to read, and it's by Saeed Kashua, an Israeli-Arab Novelist Let It Be Morning, an account of what it's like to live within an Arab village in Israel proper. Uh, Worth a read?
2: Yes. He's the only Arab novelist I could find, uh, that book, Let It Be Morning. And it analyzes the different psychology of Arabs within Israel and those without. That is, Arabs within Israel are certainly second class citizens, but they're treated with a certain level of decency. And those who are in the occupied territories are, of course, uh, under the thumb of an occupation army. And they are all hyper-nationalists. You know, they all want an independent Palestine. Some of the ones that are within Israel have been seduced to some degree by the fact that they have a higher standard of living and more privileges than those outside. Many of them are totally cynics. Uh, There is one novel uh, I referred to in the Torchlight List where the uh, young Arabs and young Israelis gathered at cafes and they sing songs spoofing the older generation. And the young Arabs sing, Orange Groves, Orange Groves, if only I could have my orange groves. Apparently every Arab who has been displaced owned an orange grove. And the young Israelis sit down and they sing nonsense songs about, you know, Jewish leaders. Cluck, cluck, cluck. We have a right to own the world. Cluck, cluck, cluck.
1: Syed Kashua, born in 1975, so a relatively new voice. Again, back to the idea of in search of the best modern authors. Uh, Has Syed got a future in writing? I think he
2: probably does. Uh, I've only read that one particular work. And I I will say, I don't think that it is an outstanding novel. It's mainly of an interest because that is the one voice you get from an Arab writer in Israel that I could determine. You get many interesting voices from Israelis. I mean, Haim Beer, The Pure Element of Time, is a wonderful novel about what life was like in an Orthodox family. He was not only expected to be a child genius, but he had to be a seer that at the age of seven he would say things and all the relatives would say, oh, what wisdom, you know, we're going to have to write that down. And there's another great novel by uh, David Grossman about the yellow wind, uh, how it is to be in the occupation army. And he tried to make friends with the Palestinians, but his second-in-command went to search a home, And when he went in, the first thing he did was to throw all the lunch off the table on the floor. And he finds out what his second command did, and he's incandescent with rage. So he goes down to the lunch hall, and this guy has his food on a tray, and he dumps the tray on his lap. But, of course, there's nothing he can do to repair relationships. It probably is the most moral occupation army in the world, but it's still an occupation army.
1: Now, (laughs) next Episode is our final uh, episode in this 10 part podcast series, The New Torchlight List, and it's the very best of the very best, as well as some awful ones. The New Torchlight List with Professor Jim Flynn, scouring the globe looking for the pearls by today's authors, with me, Wallace Chapman. The new Torchlight List was produced by Christine Sessford and recorded by Jeremy Veal. And if you enjoyed it, please write us a review or rate us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out and subscribe to any of the other great RNZ podcasts. There are plenty to choose from. Thanks for listening.
0: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Muscal and Andrew Scott.